And now to introduce today's speaker, we are joined by Dr. Nathania Figueroa. She is a general surgeon completing a hepatobiliary surgery fellowship at Providence Portland Medical Center. <clears throat> she is originally from San Juan, Puerto Rico, and completed her medical school training in Ponce School of Medicine in 2011. She subsequently uh, conducted surgical outcomes research at Cleveland Clinic, Florida, before going on to do her general surgery residency at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. And during her time there, she spent three years in a tumor immunology lab conducting basin science research in pancreas and liver cancer. Dr. Figueroa is currently completing her second and final year of fellowship and has a particular passion for all hepatobiliary pancreatic diseases and assisting in the care of patients with cancer. We are so delighted to have you share your expertise with us today. I will turn it over to you, Dr. Figueroa. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me and being able to talk about something that is truly dear and near to my heart. Um, and I think um, it's something that we all deal with and it's a, a important topic because of the vast um, uh, encompassment of, of this. So we will be talking about complicated acute pancreatitis today. So as a brief introduction, uh, pancreatitis is the third most common cause of GI hospital admissions. Um, it can be anywhere from a, a 13 to 45 um, uh, per 100,000 persons annually as an incidence. And in the US, it can lead up to up to 280,000 hospital admissions annually, annually with an overall cost of greater than 2.9 million billion per year. Lastly, there's an in increase in incidence over the last few years, and um, the prevailing sense is this is multifactorial. One of the reasons is because our high rising rates of obesity um, leading to gallstone disease has certainly in, um, contributed to increase in incidence. So this is kind of what we look at when we think about acute pancreatitis. The vast majority of patients will fall into this 80% mild pancreatitis. They'll be admitted for a couple of days um, and have required no further interventions for the most part um, with a mortality of less than 1%. The majority will, like I said, require no intervention except for the ones that might require cholecystectomy. Now, the ones that are more interesting to us um, is, are the patients who develop moderate to severe pancreatitis, about 20% of them. And um, from there, you can obviously go into developing a sterile necrosis or an infected necrosis. Sterile necrosis, even though there's no signs of infection, it still carries a high mortality rate of 13%. The biggest controversies fall within this infected necrosis um, patients, this a third of all those patients. Um, and it's something that we have uh, certainly looked into severely or um, intensively, intensely over the last 10 plus years because of the increase in mortality with these patients, 15 to 35 percent of mortality. And in some series, it can reach up to 50 percent. So for this reason, it's very important to be able to, to triage these patients early. And with that, we have um, 
the Lancet classification scheme developed or revised in 2013, 2012-2013, uh, kind of dictates how we characterize pancreatitis at this point in time. There's two phases, typically early and late, and the biggest thing to be able to note is the severity. You can have either mild, which would um, be classified, or we will know that it's mild with the classification of no organ failure. You can have moderate, which will have organ failure for less than 48 hours, or severe for organ failure longer than 48 hours. From there, um, we can divide pancreatitis into two main categories. You have your interstitial edematous pancreatitis and your necrotizing pancreatitis. So the interstitial edematous pancreatitis, um, that this becomes important when you think about when to intervene in these patients. You can have acute um, fluid collection, which is not organized at all, and that's typically within less than four weeks. When it's interstitial edematous pancreatitis, once they become organized, then um, they become a pancreatic pseudocyst, and this typically occurs at greater than four weeks. You can have necrotizing pancreatitis. The necrotizing pancreatitis can be of the pancreas itself or of the peripancreatic tissues. Now, when you have an aquatic collection that is um, not organized at the beginning, then it's called an acute necrotic collection. And like I said, that's less than four weeks. And when you develop walled off pancreatic necrosis, then that's typically at greater than four weeks. And these are the patients at greater than four weeks that we're typically intervening on. We, we like to wait until this necrosum is completely walled off. A few more pictures of what you can see when you see these patients, uh, the patient's imaging. This is an example of acute interstitial pancreatitis. You can see a heterogeneous appearance of the pancreas. There's no significant peripancreatic fluid collection. The pancreas enhances, so there's no indication of necrosum. And here um, you can see the difference over a few weeks. So initially the patient had acute interstitial uh, pancreatitis and thereafter with some peripancreatic fluid collections. And after a few weeks, these resolved on their own without any further intervention. Now, um, typically when you go, uh, the other scenario is when you go from here and then past the four weeks when you develop these pseudocysts, which we talked about. Again, the pancreas is well enhancing and the fluid collections are all encapsulated. Interesting to know is that these pseudocysts, although we typically quote as the patient having a pancreatic pseudocyst, they're actually pretty rare. True pseudocysts are rare. The vast majority of them are asymptomatic. And if you give them time, they'll actually resolve spontaneously. So um, in our practice, we will not intervene on these until they're past those four weeks and even beyond. And we um, and the patient is symptomatic. If they're asymptomatic, we leave them alone. So here we have the acute necrotizing pancreatitis, and you'll see here acute necrotic collections, which is less than four weeks. Um, these are um, important to note: is that here, even though the um, pancreas is enhancing, 
Um, it is still considered a pain, acute, pancreat, uh, acute necrotizing pancreatic because the peripancreatic tissues are the ones who are necrotic. So that can certainly occur. The difference with these images are that um, you have both peripancreatic necrosis and uh, the parenchyma of the pancreas also has some necrosis. And so um, we should note that although um, the pancreas is enhancing, you can have necrosum that becomes infected peripancreatically and still be considered acute necrotizing pancreatitis. And lastly, um, after the four weeks, these this necrosums become walled off. So one thing that um, that is interesting in these patients and probably underutilized is that uh, that necrosum can sometimes look, you could see a little bit here, but it can sometimes look uh, homogeneous on CT scans. So we employ the use of MRIs and you can tell the difference here where you can, it's a, two T, it's a T2 um, phase of the MRI where you could see the fluid component and the internal debris. And that way you can distinguish between just a homogeneous fluid collection versus true necrosome. And the same thing here, you have a, a fluid collection unclear that truly has necrosome, although you have some specs here that probably um, <clears throat> fat. But here in the T2 weighted image, which we know it's T2 because this is bright, you have um, a heterogeneous collection with internal debris. So lastly, um, when we talk about kind of these introductory uh, talks about pancreatitis, we talk about how to diagnosis. Typical abdominal pain, you have to have two or three of these. Typical abdominal pain, serum life phase or amylase greater than the three times the upper limit of normal, and the characteristic CT findings. One of those, uh, two of those three will suffice. What happens when we develop pancreatitis is you develop, for a, depending on the inciting event, an injury to either acinar or ductal cell injury, and you develop premature activation of trypsin. And this can happen within, within even 10 minutes of the injury itself. Trypsigen, trypsinogen um, converts into trypsin, and um, from there, all these um, enzymes are um, are catalyzed and there is auto digestion of the pancreas tissue. This releases a slew of cytokines creating a systemic inflammatory response, capillary leakage, and ultimately developing into these areas here, SIRS, MODs, an infected necrosis with sepsis. So the initial part of my talk that I would truly like to focus on is that first week because that's where the majority of our management decisions will be. And from there, we'll talk about kind of the surgical role um, in the weeks thereafter. So management decisions in the first week, these are the things that we talk about that are more controversial, the things that we look at. Identification of cause, prediction of severity, fluids, antibiotics, and so on and so forth. Typically, or historically in the past, it was a lot simpler, right? This is what we typically did. Um, if you had abdominal pain and elevated amylase, you had uh, acute pancreatitis. Fluid resuscitation, you give them fluids, what you think might be appropriate for that patient. Um, and it, wasn't poor, it was poorly defined and typically uh, not enough. With regards to nutrition, you kept them MPO and you placed them on TPN because the patients um, 
you did not want to stimulate the pancreas. And the theory was if you kept them MPO, you will let the pancreas heal. And lastly, antibiotics. I mean, if you have a fever, if you have a white count, you're septoid. So you um, place them on prophylactic antibiotics. This has changed. There are multiple evidence-based guidelines, and although a lot of the topics are controversial still, um, you'll find throughout literature multiple um, different uh, societies who have developed their own guidelines with regards to the management of acute pancreatitis, necrotizing pancreatitis. And so we, we're, we're um, focusing more on evidence-based guidelines. Now that we have them, the biggest problem that we're having is having people um, adhere to them, and that's across the board. So with that, let's go into the management's decisions in the first week. So as we know, um, the most important, one of the first things we do is identification of the cause. In Western countries, the most common cause of pancreatitis is gallstones or biliary sludge, uh, microlithiasis. 20% of patients will also have alcohol as a cause, and then you go into um, less common or difficult to diagnose things such as medication. Certainly you could have um, it due to hypercalcemia, hypertriglyceridemia, greater than a thousand, surgery, trauma, etc. So this is where uh, the majority of um, you as our, my medical colleagues will uh, uh, typically see the patient and do this work of medical history, physical exam, laboratory test, and transabdominal ultrasound. Things to think about when we're thinking about the cause, greater than 50 years of age, obviously think cancer. Less than 35 years, genetic causes should be considered, although I've certainly seen a lot of young patients with um, gallstone disease and alcohol-related disease because that's the world we live in at the moment. And when we have iatrogenic, um, we have to consider what other diagnostic modalities we might need. In 10 to 20 percent of case and cases, the etiology of pancreatitis remains unclear. So idiopathic pancreatitis, when you have determined this and can't find anything else, um, it is recommended you repeat a transabdominal ultrasound prior to discharge. And actually, this can potentially have a, an additional 20% diagnostic yield. In addition to that, if um, you still have no evidence of or no clear cause, the, uh, more and more of uh, the guidelines are recommended endoscopic ultrasound. It's still not truly um, uh, it's still somewhat controversial. What do you do the first event? Do you do the second event? When do you do it? Typically, you wait, like I said, the eight to 12 weeks. This is a systematic review um, that evaluated the use of EUS in determining um, the etiology in, in patients with idiopathic pancreatitis. As you can see here, they reviewed 13 studies throughout the years. And what they found was that EUS identified additional diagnostic information in 61% of patients with idiopathic pancreatitis. The, um, these are any of the different things that they found during EUS. Things like pancreatic divism are actually easier to see in MRCPs. So sometimes MRCPs or MRIs are recommended before the EUS. But in general, the most frequent diagnosis after EUS in patients with idiopathic pancreatitis was biliary tract disease, um, biliary stone, microlithiasis, and sludge. And some of these you're not going to see in MRIs. In MRIs, typically you'll have 
um, the stones um, have to be beyond five millimeters, and um, a lot of the pancreatitis that we see is microlithiasis that um, you will potentially only see through an EUS. The next um, thing that we think about when we think about that initial um, first week, and as this is particularly at the beginning of our evaluation of the patient, is prediction of severity. So um, if you identify patients at low or at high risk, um, you can triage them for developing complications and guide their initial management, which, as we know, is critical. Now, 50% um, of all these patients have predicted severe pancreatitis, but actually only half of these will actually develop moderate to severe pancreatitis. None of, but more importantly, none of the patients with predicted mild pancreatitis will develop severe pancreatitis. So it's important to look at, especially when we see first see these patients in the ED. Uh, these are different uh, diagnostic criteria, or I should say triage um, scores, sorry. Um, apologize. These are different um, classification schemes that have been um, developed throughout the years, which uh, we are most familiar with, the Apache 2, the BICEP, the Ransom criteria. The reality is when we have so many different scores, um, none of them are perfect. The, they do, are quoted as having a moderate accuracy at 70 to 80 percent and are all pretty comparable in predicting the development of persistent organ failure, but they're complex when uh, a, a lot of them are. And so they're difficult to use in a clinical setting. And for that reason, actually, the revised Atlanta classification recommended just the use of persistent SIRS with um, great, if you have persistent SIRS for greater than 48 hours, you have a higher association with uh, multi-organ failure, and it's a key determinant of mortality. I, I also wanted to bring this other study that was performed in 2015 because it discusses the use of hematocrit and Bryson um, BUN uh, for the prediction of severity. And these are actually interesting in the in the sense that they are easy to monitor. The vast majority of patients are going to get a CBC and a BMP, where you can determine um, have these lab values and determine within a short 24-hour time period, and therefore classify patients as mild or potentially severe. So what they found was um, it was a study in three different uh, three different groups. Uh, two here in the U.S. and one in the, uh, the part of the Dutch Pancreatic Study Group, and they evaluated also, uh, 16, approximately 1,600 patients. And what they determined was, with regards to organ failure, you look at the admission hematocrit. If it's greater than 40%, then you look at the rise in BUN at 24 hours. If it has risen um, above the 20%, 20 initial um, uh, value, then you can predict organ failure in up to 54% of these patients. So classified as severe. And then the pancreatic necrosis, same thing. You look at the admission hematocrit, if it's greater than 44%, then you um, predict, you look at the rise in BUN at 24 hours. And um, if you have both of these, you can predict development of pancreatic necrosis in 60% of these patients.
So these are these. This is something that we um, I think is underutilized and that we could certainly use to really classify our patients from the beginning so that we could triage them either into a higher level of care or um, triage their management in general when we talk about these first week management strategies. So um, one of the management strategies with pancreatitis, there's not much we can do initially, but one of the things that has been looked at quite extensively is fluid resuscitation. There's no curative therapy in pancreatitis. Um, so early treatment consists of supportive pair, pair and adequate fluid resuscitation. So what happens when you develop this surge response, uh, as I mentioned, the, the cytokine releases, um, you create leaky blood vessels, fluid comp, uh, sequestration, dirt spacing, and ultimately bioedema, ascites, pleurofusions, et cetera. Most importantly, you do, uh, microcirculatory defects are what are believed to the, um, promote the development of necrosis. So for fluid resuscitation, even though I said that it's been studied extensively, there's still actually quite a few controversies about it. In general, um, phorloids are discouraged uh, because there's no evidence of their uh, effectiveness in this setting. And HES is also um, discouraged because it, it, the belief is it actually might increase mortality. The Atlanta um, revised Atlanta criteria actually recommend lactated ringers. And this is based on one randomized trial, um, which is, um, it was a small quarter of patients, but um, they felt that based on that trial, there's higher evidence for the use of LR. And part of the, phys the physiology um, proposed for this is that if you have intracellular acidosis, you have increased tryptic activity. The AGA, the um, our Gastroenterology Association, actually makes no recommendation whether normal saline or ringers, um, lactated ringers is used. It suggests goal-directed therapy for fluid ma management, and it's what they found in the most recent guidelines is that um, there's actually very low quality of evidence for this. And so, but um, they, that's their best recommendation, although um, evidence is, is not um, 100%. So titrate resuscitation to physiologic polymers, high rate less than 120, MAP 65 to 85, Hematocrit 35 to 45 in urine output. So this is, um, it's although fluid resuscitation is important, we have to think about it in a controlled manner. Um, so you definitely uh, want to resuscitate the patient, but also think about over resuscitating the patient. So this is a randomized control town in China where they looked at 76 patients with severe acute pancreatitis and they randomized them into rapid fluid expansion, which is approximately 10 to 15 cc's um, per kilogram per hour, um, group one, or controlled fluid expansion, which is five to 10 cc's per kilogram per hour. And what they found is in the, the, the group one, the rate of mechanical ventilation, incidence of ACS, incidence of sepsis was actually higher and a decreased survival rate with rapid fluid expansion. So we really have to think about um, uh, being judicious with our fluid resuscitation, both in over resuscitating or under resuscitating. 
The next thing that we think about in the initial management strategies within that first week is use of prophylactic antibiotics. And we've all um, heard about this. One of the most lethal complications of acute pancreatitis is secondary infection. Um, the thought is that uh, this occurs due to bacterial translocation from the gut. And there's several double-blinded randomized controlled trials which have actually failed to show a reduction of infection of the pancreatic or periopancreatic necrosum through the use of prophylactic antibiotics. That being said, when you look at them, there was a trend towards um, less infection rates, but none of them were statistically significant. So at this time, we do not recommend um, antibiotics unless it is proven or clinically suspected. This is another area which we typically get asked for by our patients. Um, probiotic use, um, especially in this day and age, a lot of them will come and ask, is it okay if I take probiotics? And uh, the thought process that in order to prevent bacterial translocation, attempts are, were made to influence the intestinal microbiome using probiotic bacteria. However, this has not been proven to be effective and actually has been shown to be harmful up to now. So this is a uh, randomized control trial uh, published in Lancet in 2008, where it's a multi-center randomized trial where they took 298 patients with predicted severe acute pancreatitis, and they assigned them to um, within the 72 hours of onset of symptoms to receive either multi-species probiotic preparation. I think there was um, about six different species or the placebo, and they administered twice daily for 28 days. And as you can see here, um, there was actually increased rates of mortality with the probiotic group versus the placebo group. And interestingly, um, they also developed non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia, um, bowel perforation, and, and particularly small bowel uh, were the ones that will develop, was the one that developed ischemia. So the use of um, probiotics is not recommended at this time with acute pancreatitis. The last part of um, antibiotics is, that I wanted to mention was just this trial, um, not trial, meta-analysis, Cochrane meta-analysis in 2010. Um, and once again, they uh, reviewed um, prophylaxis against infection and pancreatic necrosis. And what they found was, again, there was there might have been a trend towards, but no clear uh, statistical significance um, show, uh, to uh, supporting the use of prophylactic antibiotics. However, they did find that with emetemin, uh, there was a suggested reduction in pancreatic in infections. So um, overall, we need additional studies on this, as in fluid resuscitation. The next management strategy that we talk about is within that first week is whether you do an urgent, urgent ERCP for biliary pancreatitis. As of right now, the definite indication uh, for um, urgent ERCP is cholangitis. Well, uh, and it is um, recommended that biliary pancreatitis is not an indication for urgent ERCP if there is no cholangitis does not indicate it for mild pancreatitis or predicted severe um, biliary pancreatitis. 
can potentially be um, indicated and although it has not shown statistical improvements, that it can potentially be indicated in patients with um, persistent bile obstruction. So this is a, a study published in 2020 in Lancet. It was a multi-center randomized trial uh, um, where they took, had patients with predicted severe gallstone pancreatitis without cholangitis randomly assigned to either urgent ERCP with sphincterotomy or conservative treatment. And the thought process is that if you are able to grab these patients early, because the majority of these gall biliary sludge or gallstones that come through the biliary duct pass quickly, but as they pass through the ampulla, there's um, uh, talk about the discontinual inciting events of it. So the thought process is if you could go in early, you can uh, prevent that continued exciting event by doing an urgent ERCP with sphincterotomy, releasing the stones or simply doing a sphincterotomy to help um, pervert, prevent further damage. The primary endpoint was mortality or major complications within six months of randomization. Um, as you can see here, there was no difference between mortality or major complications. Um, the other thing to note, so urgent PR, ERCP with biliary sphincterotomy did not reduce the endpoint of major complications or mortality. And then the other thing to note is it did have, um, cholangitis did occur more often with the conservative group, and that's understandable because um, you basically prophylactically did an ERCP with sphincteronomy. However, this did not have a negative impact on overall outcome, so we do not recommend urgent ERCP. And going down the line in that first week is um, we talk about nutrition. And this has very controversial, even between um, subspecialists that are dealing with the same patient. And we all have our thought processes about which um, what should occur. So it, it has been hypothesized that basically you have disturbed intestinal motility, bacterial overgrowth, and increased permeability of the cut that ultimately can lead to bacterial translocation and potentially cause an infected pancreatic necrosis. So enteral, enteral nutrition may reduce translocation and thereby maintain mucosal gut integrity. Um, a Cochrane review, review uh, looking at eight randomized crowds showed that the, uh, internal nutrition reduced rates of infection, organ failure, and mortality in these acute pancreatic patients as compared to using TPN. A multi-center randomized crowd in 2008 looking at 208 patients with predicted severe pancreatitis and were compared barely early nasal jejunal feeding less than 24 hours with introduction of an oral diet after 72 hours or on-demand nasal jejunal feeding if needed if they weren't able to tolerate food and they showed no beneficial effects on infection rates or mortality. So we know that internal nutrition is better the timing of enteral nutrition, all, even though the guidelines say early, the exact timing is controversial. Um, for patients without nausea, vomiting, or evidence of internal intestinal obstruction or ileus, it is actually recommended based on the gastroenterology guidelines um, for oral, oral nutrition to commence immediately. 
So um, oral feeding with solids is safe. You don't necessarily, if solids, they're not vomiting, you don't necessarily have to wait until their enzymes normalize, which was something that we have been taught regularly. Now for patients unable to tolerate oral intake, I found different recommendations on this. Internal nutrition is usually needed at three to five days. Some recommendations said 24 to 72 hours. Regardless, you're giving them, if they're unable to eat, you're giving them internal nutrition early. Now, um, there's always been a talk, especially among surgeons, um, between nasal gastric feeding versus nasal jejunal feedings. Nasal gastric feedings, feedings um, in small randomized trials have not been found to be inferior to nasal jejunal feeds. However, you have to take into account that a large percentage of these patients actually won't tolerate nasal gastric feeding just because of their um, underlying event. When we're talking about severe uh, necrotizing pancreatitis, you, you have the late gastric emptying and other things that actually would promote nasal jejunal tube feeds. Semi-elemental diets um, are cheaper and uh, more acceptable as compared to elemental diets. There was a large push for this, but semi-elemental diets are actually um, adequate. And uh, TBN only if internal nutrition is not possible. The last thing, well, well, two more things that we talk about in that first week decision management is same addition to cholecystectomy. So what we know is that approximately 20% of mild biliary pancreatitis recur within six weeks of discharge if gallbladder is not removed during the same admission. Um, and when I put this, I probably should have worded it differently. It's not necessarily that you're gonna have um, a recurrent acute pancreatitis, uh, but you can also have um, other uh, biliary events, either also, uh, secondary to biliary colic, acute cholecystitis. So um, even what one of the things that we were taught in residency, well, they have um, biliary sphincterotomy. You underwent an ERCB with biliary sphincterotomy, so they're not going to come back with acute pancreatitis, which is fine, but you still have other things that they can come back with that are biliary in nature that have nothing to do with or um, are, do not, are not because of pancreatitis. So same admission cholecystectomy in mild pancreatitis has been proven to safe, be safe, um, not associated with increased complications, it actually recommended. The other typical scenario that um, we were, I was taught in residency, and sometimes you'll hear um, my surgical colleagues say is, well, we have to wait until the enzymes go down, or it is, um, you just develop um, pancreatitis and it's gonna be inflamed and difficult to go in there, et cetera. And while that might be true for severe necrotizing pancreatitis, for mild pancreatitis, that is not the case. You can, um, you can and should go ahead and remove that gallbladder. Another scenario that um, has been, um, that typically happens is the surgeon doesn't have time at that point in, at that, uh, in, within the next few days. They don't wanna keep the patient in-house. So they say, well, let's send them home and I'll do the cholecystectomy within a week's time. 
you know, different situations you, uh, call for different scenarios. So certainly you can individualize, but the recommendation is to do it during that same admission. And if you develop necrotizing severe pancreatitis, you want to wait at least six weeks prior to um, cholecystectomy, if not more. Um, but ultimately, we move that gallbladder. And this is just um, a, what's called the Panchill trial. It was, was published in Lancet in 2015, where they compared interval cholecystectomy versus same admission cholecystectomy and mortality rates um, were not significant, but readmission for gallstone-related complications were significantly higher in patients where um, it, there was the the management was interval cholecystectomy versus same admission cholecystectomy. The last thing that we talk about in that initial first week is imaging. The reality is everybody comes in, they have pancreatitis, and a vast majority of them, it's at least the ones I have seen, and it's probably good I see them because they're already um, headed toward that severe path. They develop, they um, are receive a CT imaging very early in their hospital course. Um, and Truly, in the first three to four days of acute pancreatitis, uh, the CT imaging is, is unreliable for determining the extent of necrosis. Um, only patients uh, have suspected ha having abdominal catastrophe, such as perforation, bleeding, or ischemia, should have an urgent CT scan. Or um, in, otherwise, if the patient has mild pancreatitis, you don't need one. If they fail to improve after five to seven days, then um, you can certainly uh, then obtain a CT scan to determine the presence and extent of necrosis. It's important to note that the process of encapsulation mostly takes around four to six weeks. So actually, um, and that the intervention is only indicated for the most part in infection or in the case of mechanical obstruction or failure to thrive. But these are things where you're gonna get be getting imaging farther out throughout time. So this initial period, uh, an initial ultrasound will suffice. So once after talking at that, about that first uh, week and the management decisions within that first week, we discuss um, those patients that go on to develop severe pancreatitis um, and particularly the infected necrosis because these are the patients that um, are going to have the highest mortality. So how do we diagnose the infected necrotizing pancreatitis? You know, one of the things that it's, it, it, this is easier said than done. We know that um, if the patient has fluid collections, like I mentioned here, gas in the uh, configurations in the necrotic collection, they have an infection. If you were, um, if you by any chance for whatever reason at an outside hospital, this isn't recommended, but um, if the, they aspirated the collection and you have um, collect a positive grand spain or culture, then certainly you know you have a, uh, an infected collection and then you could treat accordingly. The, the problem that it becomes an issue is this suspected clinical diagnosis. And the reason for that is within the first one to two weeks, you're gonna have this severe surge response. So they can be, um, they can be spiking fevers, having tachycardia, simply because of the surge response. And being able to um, differentiate that with um, infection is hard. So during these init this initial one to two weeks, we typically like to 
look at our CT scans um, when appropriate and look for those gas collections or have positive culture data. Afterwards, you have the severe, oh, sorry, we have the severe immunosuppression and um, this is where translocation of inter uh, intestinal flora occur and you develop um, infections. So um, it is in this scenario where you could also use clinical suspicion after those um, after that time period. And then procalcitonin is one of those things that, um, at least in my world, is rarely utilized, but is considered to be most sensitive for the detection of pancreatic infection. Um, so when to intervene? As you all know, historically, we did um, patients with necrotizing pancreatitis underwent early laparotomy to debris necrotic tissue, and there was high mortality rates. Current guidelines advocate for delay intervention until the stage of walled off pancreatic necrosum. This is the, um, the step-up trial, which was um, published in 2010 at the, in the New England Journal of Medicine, where they looked um, randomly assigned 88 patients with necrotizing pancreatitis and suspected or confirmed infected necrotosis to undergo either open necrosectomy or step-up approach of treatment. And the step-up approach of treatment included percutaneous drainage and, if needed, thereafter uh, surgical intervention. Um, what they found is of the patients assigned to step-up approach, 35% were treated with percutaneous drainage early. So you were able to kind of avoid even a big operation with an open abdomen, um, large um, development of incisional hernias, and so on and so forth. Nuanced multi-organ failure occurred less often in patients with a step-up approach than in those with assigned to open necrosectomy. Um, and you can see that here, um, the differences between the two. And uh, also important to note is that these patients actually had a higher rate of um, diabetes and the need for uh, pancreatic enzymes. So that was kind of a paradigm shift in our management of these patients. But now we're going through another shift and it's whether we do an endoscopic versus a surgical step-up approach. So this is a study um, where they um, looked at an endoscopic or surgical step-up approach for inspecting necrosizing pancreatitis. It's a multi-center randomized superatory tutel. And they recruited patients with infected necrotizing pancreatitis and an indication for invasive intervention from 19 hospitals in the Netherlands. This is the Dutch pancreatic study group. Um, and if they were randomized into the endoscopic group, they underwent EUS guided transluminal drainage followed by necrosectomy if needed. Um, and this was all done endoscopically. If they underwent, if they were randomized to surgical, they underwent percutaneous catheter drainage followed by a retroperitoneal necrosectomy or VARD if needed. Um, there was no major, um, the primary endpoints were major complications and there was no difference between either approaches. Uh, so there was not, no inferiority between either of them. Interestingly, uh, um, they did find, and this is kind of, um, somewhat self-explanatory, an increased pancreatic fistula rate with the um, surgical step-up. So they concluded that uh, right now, 
we are kind of headed toward using more an endoscopic um, step up approach rather than a surgical. The other thing to note that is not in this diagram is that the endoscopic surgical uh, endoscopic approach actually had a um, decreased length of stay. And the thought process behind that was that the surgical approach um, is is if you're going for it's a lot easier to go from an EGD um, stent placement and subsequent to that necrosectomy than from a percutaneous drain that is performed by IR to an actual operation performed by someone else. And typically the surgeons will continue to change the drains throughout and upsize drains to prevent that time period, to prevent um, surgical intervention. And so the length of hospital stay is um, tends to be a little bit longer. Uh, so when we, we talk about the step up approach and then the other controversy and in intervention is doing immediate versus postponed interventions for infected necrotizing pancreatitis. Um, international guidelines actually recommend um, a, a intervention on, until the infected necrosome is encapsulated. So this study was again a multi-center randomized superiority trial involving infected necrotizing pancreatitis patients who either underwent immediate drainage within 24 hours after randomization once infected necrosis was diagnosed versus drainage as was postponed until the walled off necrosis was reached. So um, in reality, this what, what happened was they would um, patients would come in and once there was any suspicion to infected necrosum uh, or infected pancreatitis, they were um, they could have been in the hospital already for two weeks or so. But once they developed infected necrotizing pancreatitis, then um, the study investigators were uh, alerted and they were randomized. So some of these patients, even though it's immediate drainage within 24 hours of randomizations, some of these um, drainages in the immediate period occurred at day, the typical I think mean was around 24 versus and, um, the postponed one was in the 30 plus days. And um, in the mean difference between the two, there was only 10 days, but they, they what they said was even those 10 days of difference are enough to prevent um, further uh, uh, unneeded intervention. So with that, we'll talk about the conclusions show that trial did not show superiority of immediate drainage over postponed drainage with regards to amputations and people ran, uh, randomly assigned to the postponed drainage strategy refused fewer interventions and some of them actually were even managed solely with um, antibiotics. So in general, if we can hold off, if the patient is not clinically deteriorating, we still like to wait those four weeks. Um, just towards the end, I wanted to um, show this brief video um, of a one of our cases. It's not the best video, but I wanted to show you guys kind of what we do and when we think about these interventions. This is a laparoscopic cyst gastrostomy. So in here you have the stomach kind of um, folded over and then this was the pancreatic um, cyst or uh, walled off pancreatic necrosum. And this is what you see when you go in there. Um, in a moment you'll see it a little bit better, but 
um, you go in and you just see this much of dead tissue and it's all black. You can't really see what is what in there. You can't, and obviously this is um, near the SMA, SMB, splenic vein. So it's very hard to determine what's what. Um, and on top of that, it's actually, uh, as we're pulling stuff here, it's really hard to actually get this out. Um, we pull chunks and they are small. They're very small chunks. So um, here we have, again, kind of a different view of it, um, going in and pulling off these chunks. So what we did here is we go in and we connect the stomach to the cyst cavity, and this is walled off already. So it is not gonna leak. Um, shortly here, you'll see us uh, closing it. Um, and you create a avenue for that necrosum to uh, to drain. This is why um, it is so hard uh, sometimes to treat these patients even with drains and why we we are super aggressive about flushing our drains because it is very hard to get this out even when we're mechanically trying to debride it. Um, typically, uh, when we're on the floors, the nurses flush these, the drains that go in here, 10 cc's, sometimes a day, sometimes three times a day. And the reality is you're not going to get anything out of that if you're just doing that little bit. So you truly um, have to kind of think about where the drains are at and um, be aggressive about the uh, about uh, flushing them and making sure they don't get clogged with this necrosum. So here we are. Closing the necrosum. This is stomach on top, the walled off pancreatic necrosum. You've now connected the stomach to the necrosum, and then we're just putting omentum on top um, of here to kind of solidify the closure. So I don't. I I want to give some time for questions if there are any. Um, these uh, the last part of these um, last few slides were just complications that we talk about, but I think we could stop there and kind of go over any questions if anybody has anything. Uh, many thanks, Dr. Figueroa. Um, really gives an insight and fascinating to see some images from surgery there, uh, a whole new appreciation for what we're trying to drain. Um, we have just a, a couple of questions and then maybe if we have a few moments, feel free to come on and any highlights that you'd like to bring forward with other complications. Um, sure. Yeah, I think one one topic that came up, um, perhaps being a largely internal medicine crowd, um, we think about GLP-1 um, agonists as one medication class, potentially with risk for pancreatitis. Wondered if you had any comments um, on use of, of that medication or perhaps others um, that we ought to be particularly aware of when it comes to pancreatitis. You know, we, um, to be completely honest, um, you, we really rely on you guys heavily when it comes to medication usage and uh, the cause of pancreatitis. The reality is that medications are one of those things that are exclusion um, and you, you come to the conclusion that they develop pancreatitis because of them out of exclusion mainly because they're hard to prove. And so um, when that's why it's so important to continue in a multidisciplinary approach. I um, don't have a lot of experience with regards to the medications and I rely heavily on you guys to assist me with that and determining the ideology. 
Great, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I think often, yeah, etiology and diagnosis falls uh, within our realm. Thanks for yeah, help with exactly. the complications. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and next question, I think it was informative um, to see uh, the relatively high rate of, of recurrence um, with gallstone pancreatitis of complications, and then interesting to see up to a 20% yield from a right upper quadrant ultrasound prior to discharge, and then also 60% potential yield on that delayed EUS. Um, so uh, just wondered um, in your experience, if you're seeing that typically done by the teams um, when etiology has not been found. Um, and I wondered if, if you had comments on how often that is revealing a biliary source that then leads to, to cholecystectomy. So within our practice, even though this kind of this is part of our bread and butter, it still hasn't even caught on. I mean, um, the VP ultrasound is rarely done. The EUS, even in our practice, is still rarely done. And I think there's still a little bit of controversy about do you wait for the first episode? Do you wait for the second episode? But it's certainly something that is out there and is recommended and it's just not being done. One of the um, other um, scenarios is that if um, you have iatrogenic pancreatitis, a lot of people will say, well, we'll just simply recommend a prophylactic cholecystectomy because the rate of um, pancreatitis or of biliary um, reasons behind it is so high that um, people will just prophylactically do a cholecystectomy. But I think that certainly um, we truly need to think about these things more, particularly not just with the diagnosis, but um, you know, the management of these patients to pre uh, for prevention of recurrence, whether it be alcohol cessation, whether it be, um, you know, teaching them what they should eat, what they should not eat, or um, particularly on us is um, the surgical aspect of it. I can tell you that I know this data and I sometimes, even during residency, it would be very difficult to, to do a cholecystectomy on the same day, a same admission um, because of the logistics of it. So um, I think there's some, a lot of room to grow. Great, thanks so much for those insights. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I think we gathered from your talk, um, but just to be clear, uh, it, you acknowledge the challenge and sometimes um, diagnosing infection um, it sounds like there is not a recommended role typically for aspiration as part of our diagnostic process. Is that correct? Correct. I mean, it is something that has been done, but it's typically not recommended at, at this point in time based on the guidelines. Um, but it's something that is used because they might come from another hospital or they might, et cetera. So they, you might, for whatever reason, have culture data. Um, but in, in, and in certain instances, I think some people um, are inclined to do it, but for the most part, we do not recommend aspiration. Yeah, and for multiple reasons, the fear of infecting it or um, the fear of going into a collection that um, is not completely walled off, et cetera, et cetera. But mainly it's because of the fear of infecting that collection. Thank you for that clarity. 
Um, one last question, and, and again, um, feel free to defer if this is in more of a GI realm, um, but uh, wondered if any insights or comments on development of chronic pancreatitis um, in the setting of patients who have had acute or perhaps recurrent acute pancreatitis? Um, yeah, I mean, I, we certainly see development of recurrent uh, pancreatitis in these patients, um, but uh, I, I can't say I know off the top of my head kind of a um, quote or a particular number as to how many of them. And uh, actually, one of the things that um, you do see with uh, with the diagnosis and the EUS is uh, you you sometimes just see within the EUS that they already had chronic pancreatitis, and that's kind of what what you're you're seeing. Um, and if you are going to have acute or subacute mild episodes, but as to with um, the percentage of patients or that progression, I, I I would have to kind of dig a little bit further. Yeah, no worries at all. Thank you so much. Um, I think that's all of our questions. And seeing as we're just about two minutes to the top of the hour, perhaps we'll leave it there. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much um, for sharing this knowledge, um, helping encourage us all toward following the guidelines with pancreatitis management um, and having some relationship with our interprofessional team. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Have a good day.